Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I had a uh, parishioner grab me this last week and, and tell me, you know, that Abraham and Isaac story has been an issue for me for, for a very, very long time. And regardless of your sermon last week, I'm just not able to see him as an exemplar of faith. I think he's a madman. That's what I think. This is not the only visceral and, and honest reaction that I've received to last week's sermon on the walls that we face and how to journey through them, how we have crises in our lives and we have an opportunity to either bail on our faith, to camp out and get stuck at those crises, or to journey through the wall. And while I believe that the image of a wall resonates with all of us at some level, it's clear to me that the story of Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his own son Isaac is a sticking point for many of us, and that's okay. I think it's worth sitting with this story further as we transition to our next topic in our series on emotionally healthy spirituality, which is enlarging our soul through grief and loss. Maybe you read that sermon title when you came in and said, oh, geez, is that what we're talking about today? Well, much like the walls that we discussed last week, loss is a critical part of life that we cannot avoid. From the moment that we leave the womb, we are born and we start to experience loss. And we know that one day we're going to lose everything. Our achievements, our accumulations, our loved ones, our very lives. So we can let grief and pain and loss destroy our souls or we can use them to enlarge our souls. This much is sure. You will grieve and you will have to process loss. So the challenge is to do so biblically. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Maybe that's why... Abraham as a faith hero is difficult for so many of us because his intention to sacrifice his own son, when we read that story, he doesn't even seem human, does he? He doesn't seem to deal with grief and loss at all. He seems to stand against the biblical treatment of grief and loss. I mean, two-thirds of the Psalms are laments expressions of deep sorrow and loss. There's a whole book called Lamentations that, say for about four verses, is Jeremiah just processing raw, processing grief and, and loss that he felt every day in his life. We understand the book of Job when we read it, this one who experienced unthinkable loss on, on almost every level and spends most of his story grieving those losses and, and kind of this messy processing with God and his friends. We dwell on that second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We look at our text for today in Jesus of Gethsemane, and, and we see what it means in a biblical sense to enlarge our soul through grief and loss. But Abraham does none of these things on his journey, does he? On his journey to Mount Moriah, we don't see any of this. Sure, he, he journeys through the wall, but he is not a model of, of embracing grief and loss. Faithfully, he's nothing like Jesus at his point of grief and loss in Gethsemane. So I want to look at that text that, that Chad read for us. And I want you to, to hear it again and to notice the grief and the loss language that's here. 
Remember that before Jesus' betrayal, arrest, and crucifixion, he knows all that's coming when he's in the garden. And yet his grief comes to a head in the, in the garden of Gethsemane. Look at verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and I pray. And he took, him, he took with him Peter and two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and agitated. Some translations use the word sorrowful or even depressed here, which I think is fair. Mark in his gospel account of the Garden of Gethsemane uses a word that's actually technically translated, horror came over him. This was a horror movie. Horror came over him. Verse 38. And Jesus said to them, I am deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Jesus is honest that the anguish he feels is enough to overcome him, to kill him. He's overwhelmed to the point of death. He's scared, he's shaken, and he does not want to be left alone in his time of greatest need. And then verse 39, going a little further, he threw himself on the ground and prayed, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. Jesus' bodily posture tells us quite a bit, doesn't it? I mean, when we kneel or stand or bow or raise our hands, it says something about our spiritual condition. Our posture tells us something about our spiritual condition. Well, here Jesus is face down among the tree roots and the dirt and the olive pits. He has a poverty of spirit. In Luke's account, he even takes this language a step further. He says, being in anguish, Jesus prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus was pushed to the absolute limit emotionally. He who was without sin was about to bear the wrath of a holy God and assume the punishment for the sins of the world, the entire world, past, present, and future. He was going to be cut off from his father. He was losing his earthly friends, most of all Judas, who was going to betray him and lose his own life, but also the other 11 disciples who he knows are going to desert him in his time of greatest need when he has been their healer and their teacher and their supporter and their friend. But not only this, he feels the loss of Israel and their disobedience as God's chosen people, the people of God who will cheer as he is nailed to the cross. The very creator of the universe is going to be spat upon and flogged and humiliated all in the name of God. This is true loss and true grief. And we see it on full display in the Garden of Gethsemane. Those are the emotions of Jesus and they're laid out for us in this text clearly for all of us to see. But notice, verse 37. Jesus only began to be sorrowful. I think this indicates that he restrained himself from consummating these emotions, either through total despondency or just shutting down completely. Instead, he allows himself to feel everything that he needs to feel. He wanted out. Father, can I fulfill your plan in any other way? Is there any other way to do this? 
If it's possible, could this cup be taken from me? That's, that's what I would want. But Jesus doesn't get his miracle, which is why he's such a perfect example for us, because we seldom get our miracle either, sometimes, but seldom. I hope that Jesus is encouraging to those of you who are feeling grief and loss right now. He's modeling for us a whole new way of being human, a whole new way to not be consumed by grief and loss, but rather to enlarge your soul through it. Peter Cesaro, who we're tracking with through this whole sermon series, suggests that Jesus models enlarging your soul through grief and loss in two ways in this passage. First, Jesus listens to the interruption. Losses are interruptions. They're interruptions in our plans. Most of us don't plan for grief and loss. They're interruptions. Our tendency in these times is to focus on the plans that we had and sort of ignore the pain and the loss, the grief. Ignore the interruptions. But grief and and losses come to all of us. Deaths, breakups, divorces, illnesses, disappointments, abuse, broken relationships, failure, our children, our parents, doors that get slammed in our face, guilt, shame, painful memories, traumas. Our culture doesn't like to focus on these things very much. We're told not to feel, maybe not overtly, but that's the message, don't feel. Don't talk too much about these things that you're going through. You're going to push people away. You're going to scare them. Stuff it. Numb it out. Buck up. Keep busy. I'll admit that the church is not exempt from this. As I shared last week, when crisis hits, when when grief and loss come, we are at our most raw and we often feel like church is the least safe place for us to come and be. Because everyone here seems happy and well and thankful and we don't want to be in a place where we feel like we need to fake it. If you've ever felt like your church isn't a safe place to grieve and feel loss, I want to apologize for that. Because the notion that good Christians don't get hurt or confused or discouraged or have moments when they are stretched to their emotional limit and need to fall on their faces, that's a total lie. Yes, they do. Just look at Jesus. Just look at Jesus. He was entirely human like us. He lived in in a body. He had emotions. He had a mind. And for this reason, we can look to him as an example. He doesn't stuff those emotions down. He doesn't push them away. His humanness is overwhelmed by a depressive weight so heavy that he says, I feel so bad that I could just die. But remember also that Jesus is the Messiah. This is fully God. For this reason, many have rejected Jesus in Gethsemane. Early heretics could not accept Jesus being fully God and fully human, so they rejected this passage altogether. They rejected the emotions of Jesus. But I think the fact that this is This is God himself who is at the emotional breaking point, gives you and I permission to feel what we feel. This is what it means to grieve biblically. 
And if these griefs and, and losses are interruptions in, in our plans, think about Jesus. Jesus came for victory and life and healing and to bring the reign of the kingdom of God. In that plan, these are interruptions. The cross is an interruption. Friends who betray you are an interruption. In Gethsemane, he, he could have easily said, hey, you know what, guys? I'm, I'm going to the cross. This is my last hour. I want to get something good to eat. Let's just be strong. Let's meet Judas and let's get this over with. He could have said that. Instead of weeping for his friend Lazarus, he could have said, hey, let's go walk out to the tomb. He's coming back to life. Let's go. Instead of weeping over Jerusalem, he could have just cursed Jerusalem for their disobedience. On the cross, instead of saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He could have said, Lord, despite what I'm facing right now, I praise you. Life is good. You're good. But he didn't say that, did he? Instead, he models a willingness to listen to the interruptions, a willingness to get down on the ground in grief when he could have acted otherwise. Maybe you felt that to listen to the interruption of grief and losses and to end up on the ground like Jesus is in some way to be less than a good Christian. That it was evidence of a weak faith life. But that notion is unbiblical and it's inhuman. Nicholas Wolterstorff was a professor at Yale, and he's a prominent theologian and philosopher. His 25-year-old son was killed in a rock climbing accident, and he wrote a book about it later called Laments for a Son. As I read this, I want you to, to listen to how he is listening for the interruption that grief and loss brings. Eric, my son, was bursting with plans, and now it's all gone. All the rich future he held gone in those tumbling seconds. Nothing fills the void of his absence. He is not replaceable. We can't go out and, and get another just like him. There's a hole in the world now. In the place where he was, there is now nothing. Only a gap remains. Please don't say it's really not so bad because it is. I can only endure with Job. Endure. I do not know why God did not prevent Eric's death. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I also believe that my son's life was cut off in its prime. I cannot fit these pieces together. I'm at a loss. To the most agonizing question I have ever asked, I do not know the answer. I do not know why God would watch him fall. That's a statement of great faith. I believe in God, and I don't understand, and I feel the whole range of emotions that come from this, and I do not run from them. That's a statement of faith. This is what Jesus modeled for us at Gethsemane. The first, listen to the interruption. Second, Jesus teaches us to obey and let go of our own wills. You might notice in this text that Jesus doesn't automatically obey. He struggles at first. Jesus told his father what his heart's desire was in the midst of his grief and loss. What he most wanted. And he didn't pretend to want something else. But look at verse 44. So he left them and went away once more and prayed a third time. Saying the same thing. Three times, folks. He learned 
obedience in Gethsemane as part of a process and was able to end his prayer by saying, not my will, but yours be done. We need that same kind of obedience. Pete Cesaro states it this way, a learned, or, or, sorry, a struggled, learned, prayed for obedience is the true obedience. A struggled, learned, prayed for obedience is the true obedience. This is the true obedience that leads us to, to let go of what we're holding and let go of the need to have all the answers. And no one models this better than Jesus. And this is exactly why we struggle with Abraham. If I can go back to him. He doesn't seem to see this trip to Moriah as an interruption. He doesn't exhibit a struggled, learned, prayed for obedience, does he? Couldn't Abraham muster just like a modicum of the emotion of Jesus in Gethsemane? I mean, couldn't he indicate in some way that he was grieved to have to go and murder his son? How come he's not praying prayers of, let this cup pass from me? Would it be so hard for him to be face down on the ground as he prepares to sacrifice his one and only son? We're not the first nor the last to ask these questions of Abraham. The 19th century Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard wrote an entire treatise on the story of Abraham and Isaac on Moriah called Fear and Trembling, in which he asks many of those same questions. His thesis has been extremely helpful for me. He states, The story of Abraham contains a teleological suspension of the ethical. Now hang with me. Many feel that for God to even ask this of Abraham is, is, is to contradict his, his own nature. God is loving and peaceful and just, so he cannot ask something to be done that goes against his nature. Kierkegaard wrestles with this in his book and comes to a conclusion that there must have been a suspension of the ethical law that we would all agree upon in order to fulfill the divine purpose in a way that Abraham was not aware. To fulfill the telos, which is, which is the word for purpose or, or outcome. So he advocates for a higher law than that ethical law that most of us operate under as humans. Laws like, you shouldn't sacrifice your own son under any circumstance. Kierkegaard states, for the genuinely religious person, there is a higher and quite different source and form of obligation. So if I may, I'd like to defend Abraham. The text doesn't indicate a face-down moment or a struggling obedience in Abraham, but it doesn't say that he wasn't that way either. I'd like to believe that Abraham went through the same emotions that Jesus went through, or some of them. I'd like to believe that his obedience was a messy, reluctant, struggling one. I'd like to believe that on his three days journey, he prayed many times for a way out of this. Now, I know that I'm filling in the text where it is silent, and many of you know I don't like to do that. But I do so because there's too much in these stories that are similar that I have to believe that the emotions are similar too. What's similar in the story, you might ask? Well, what if I told you that most scholars are convinced that Mount Moriah is actually this mountain? 
that a thousand years after Abraham traveled to this mountain to sacrifice his son, that they were going to erect a temple and dedicate it on this very spot. And, and in that very spot, there would be a place where sacrifices would be made as an atonement for sin. And then what if I told you that a thousand years after they built that temple, that a man named Jesus would be face down on the ground, staring across the Wadi Joes at this mountain, Mount Moriah, knowing that the next day he'd be carrying a cross on his shoulders up that hill to become a blameless and innocent sacrifice for the sins of the world. Abraham and Isaac are foreshadowing of Jesus himself, of the relationship between the Father and the Son, of listening to interruptions and obeying in order to let go of everything. The Apostle Paul has a term, a different term for the teleological suspension of the ethical that might make more sense to you. He calls it foolishness. Abraham's actions are foolishness by any worldly standard. But he has a higher and divine purpose to fulfill and a higher, more mysterious obligation. Jesus' actions in Gethsemane and in the day to follow are foolishness. He didn't deserve any of this. This is not just. This is not right. But he has a higher and divine purpose to fulfill and a higher, more mysterious obligation as well. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 1, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the, intelligent, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where's the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of the world, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through that, through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, a wall to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles. But those, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Do you want to know something else that's foolishness? Enlarging your soul through grief and loss is foolishness. To think that you could even do that is foolishness. Because by any earthly standard, grief and loss don't enlarge your soul, they destroy your soul. It's going to take a teleological suspension of common ethic. It's going to take some foolishness to do that. Because what is foolish to the world, lying face down and choosing a long obedience and letting go, that's the power of God for us who know him, to know the one who calls and leads us. There is nothing more foolish than choosing the cross, the very symbol of grief and loss. But the foolishness of God is so much wiser than our wisdom. All I know is that Abraham found a God who provides on Mount Moriah. He set up an altar there to say as much. All I know is that Jesus found life beyond death on Mount Moriah, 
a father who provides for him. And all I know is that should you, with struggling obedience, bring your grief and your loss to the very same place, I know, I know that you're going to find a God who provides for you as well. But oh my, is it a foolish thing to do. It is a foolish thing to do. But when we do choose to bring our grief and our loss to that place, our souls are enlarged and we experience the power and the wisdom of God. Abraham did. Jesus did. May we do the same. Let's pray. Lord, would you lead me, lead us to Mount Moriah, to the place where we are faced with grief and loss so that we might, as your son Jesus did, lay face down and feel everything that our hearts feel because these are the hearts that you gave us. But may we not be consumed by our grief and our loss, but instead listen to those interruptions and choose to obey you and let go so that you might enlarge our souls. Would you give us hope that that such a place is not just a place of grief and loss and death and dying, but it's a place of grief and loss and letting go so that we might experience true life because, Lord, life is found on Mount Moriah as well. Would you give us the courage to suspend our own earthly knowledge so that we might find our resolution in you? And in the life that you give us through the foolishness of the cross. Pray these things in your name. Amen.